morning. All happy? Yeah, there it is. Well, as Mike mentioned, our Haiti team is still uh, still down in Haiti, and we'll be back, I believe, on Tuesday afternoon their flight gets in, so we'll continue to pray for them and lift them up. If you haven't been following the Oak Park Facebook page, the wonders of technology, we're able to get updates from them regularly throughout this week, and there's a lot of great pictures there, so you can get a picture of what our partnership with that church in Haiti looks like, and it's exciting to get the chance to to see that from afar. So this morning we'll go back to that little mini-series we've been doing as, uh, as Chase has been out of town and uh, will continue to do throughout the summer on those occasions called The Glories of the Cross. And the whole point of this series is to go back to major New Testament passages on the gospel. This is a choice that I made because I'm convinced that while we still live in this life battling the flesh, we will constantly drift away from our understanding of grace. I believe that human nature is hardwired. It is spring-loaded like a mousetrap to snap back into legalism. In the way that we talk about ourselves, in the way that we think about others, in the way that we hold standards of this world, we are constantly trigger-ready to jump back into law. Because it makes sense. This is why Paul calls the gospel foolishness. A tit-for-tat, do-this-get-that kind of world makes sense to our brains. And the gospel is scandalous by comparison. So it doesn't make sense to us in our interactions with others to, to forgive, to give second chances, to expect nothing in return. It doesn't make sense in our interactions with God. We so often try to prove ourselves to him. We get our self-worth from what we've accomplished. We are constantly drifting back into works. I believe it was John Stott, the great Anglican theologian that passed away, I believe, 2011. He wrote this, Those who presume the gospel in one generation will lose it in the next. We know the gospel so well that we just start to kind of presume it. And I find this in my own life. We sing about the gospel absolutely every week here. No matter, how, uh, no matter how far away we are from the Gospels in the Bible, whether we're all the way back in Genesis or preaching from the Old Testament or whatever, we're, we always get the Gospel every week here at Oak Park. And that's something that, that I hope will mark the worship ministry of this church long after I'm gone. But the fact of the matter is I can schedule those songs every week and sing those songs every week and even hear the words of those songs every week and still find myself drifting back into a law relationship with God. And so it's right and good, and I would even say essential, that we take time regularly in the pulpit to focus on the center of the Bible, the person and work of Jesus Christ. So my goal in this little mini-series is to take all those major New Testament statements, New Testament sermons, if you will, on the gospel, those passages where the apostles take and unpack the gospel and its implications in the most powerful and artful ways and focus in on those to bring our mind back to why we do what we do. No matter what else we talk about, whether we preach about parenting, whether we preach about mission, whether we preach about politics, we've been going through Acts and we've touched on all of those things. Make no mistake, the one reason we are here is because of that. And so today we're going to focus in, what is the cross? 
what is our relationship to God because of it? We've been doing this for, for three weeks, just to bring your mind back since it's been a couple weeks since we were in this little mini-series. The first week, we looked at what it means to be brought from death to life in Ephesians chapter 2. In the second week of this series, we looked at what it meant to be brought from wrath to grace in Romans chapter 3. And this week, we're going to look at what it means to be taken from being lost to being found. That's why Mike read those, those great parables of, of the feast where God sends out his servants to go, to go get the vagabonds and the people sleeping in the ditches and bring them into his feast. And the parable of the, the widow with her lost coin and the shepherd with a lost sheep that God pursues us and brings us into his kingdom. And this morning we're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 1. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. While you go there, just an interesting observation. After the last two sermons, a lot of you came up to me somewhere along the way and said something along the lines of, oh, that, was, that was pretty tough to hear. <laughs> or uh, um, my, favorite, my favorite comment was, that was really depressing in a good way. <laughs> and that's true. Those were, those were hard messages to preach, to think about our deadness, our depravity, and the, the, how the depth of our sin has, has twisted us. That, that's not fun to think on. But I think that this is actually a really good thing that we went there first. In order to understand the gospel, we have to hear the bad news first. Because until we understand the depth of our depravity, we don't understand the heights of grace. I think this is one of the things that many false teachers will twist today in order to remove the scandal of the gospel. I don't want to drop names just for name's sake, but part of the pastoral role is to protect people. And so I'm going to name drop a little bit this morning, because I think being that he's one of the most visible pastors in the country and makes some of these errors, you need to know. So I hate to do it, but let's talk about Joel Osteen, all right? Now, here's, here's the interesting thing. Joel Osteen says some wonderful things about God. He says some true things about God. He talks about the goodness of God. He talks about how much God loves you, and he uses the Bible to do it. That's why it's so weird. It's hard to, it's, it, you can't hate that guy. He's not, he's likable. He's a very nice guy. He's saying good things. The thing is, he never says the bad news. He just leaves that out, takes away the scandal of the gospel. And I can understand why you would be tempted to do that. The bad news is hard to hear. It was no fun to hear those sermons. No fun to preach those sermons. You don't want to hear me yelling in the pulpit, you're dead in your sins. Nobody likes that. But the truth of the matter is we have to hear the bad news to understand the good news. If the fire department shows up at your house and it's not burning down, it's an annoyance. If Jesus shows up in your life and you don't need a savior, it's an invasion. Jesus is going to take over and unless we understand that we are lost and in need of this savior... When the house is burning down and the fire department shows up, it's salvation. So unless we understand that apart from Christ, our lives are burning down, when he shows up, it will feel like he's invading. But when we see what we need in Christ, then this is beautiful. And so it's that dark curtain of our brokenness and sin that the drama of the gospel is played out on. It's how we can see the actors clearly. The light of the gospel against the darkness of our sin. And so this morning, here's the fun part. We've done that. We did it for two weeks. I hit you hard. And if you weren't here, go back and listen to those. 
Because this morning, we get to have fun. This morning, everything we're going to look at is desperately good. Look with me at Ephesians chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 3 through 10. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things on heaven and things on earth. Let me just read part of that to you again. There's so much there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. This passage is almost hymn-like as Paul expresses the gospel. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. I think it is the most beautiful, compact expression of the gospel in all of the Bible. That's why we use it so often as a call to worship here. It expresses so much of what God has done for us to the praise of his glorious grace. Like I said, it's, it's almost hymn-like. This is what we would call a doxology. I don't like just throwing out Latin words so that you have them, but the idea of doxology is very important. In the Bible, the biblical authors in the epistles will often have a doxology. What is that? Well, it's when you're thinking on something good for a long time. You're thinking about something good, and then you just overflow to saying beautiful praise about it. A great example of this is in Romans chapter 11. Paul does this. Paul does this often where he, we think of Paul as the great thinker. That, you know, Paul was just sitting around all day long going, oh, think about God, think about God, think about God. Paul was the great praiser. So in Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10, Paul has this massive, compact, logical argument about how God grafts the Gentiles into the Jews, and it was hidden for all of time. But now because of Christ, he's looking back at the Old Testament, and he's able to see how God was hiding these hints throughout the entire Old Testament compact, difficult passages of the Bible, Romans 8 through 10. Difficult, confusing, it's tight logic. And after Paul is mulling on this and thinking on this, he gets to chapter 11, verse 33, and he just stops, and it's like he puts down his pen, and he goes, oh, the depth of the wisdom of God. I've been thinking about it, I've been looking at it, and I can't hold it in anymore. How wise, how smart, how intelligent was this God to hide that beautiful gospel throughout the whole Old Testament, and it took me years to understand it. How smart is God? That's what a doxology is. It's when you're thinking on, 
thinking on the truths about God, and it just bubbles over, and you have to sing something. You have to say something, and this happens throughout the epistles. It's a beautiful picture of it, that these writers were not looking at this with hands off. This wasn't merely something that they thought. This was something that absorbed them, that took them over, that grasped their hearts. And what we have here is a doxology. A little side note, this one's for free. This is why I think thinking about God is really important for every Christian, not just for pastors. Sometimes we go, well, pastors are supposed to think about God so we can be Bible answer men. That's true. We should. We should know our Bibles really well and be able to be Bible answer men. That's a challenge for all of our pastors, for those men that hopefully in the future will be raising up as pastors, to know your Bible so well that you can be good Bible answer men. But every Christian should be thinking about God for the sake of doxology. Now, that, can, that doesn't mean that I expect every Christian in this church to go out buy five volumes of Karl Barth and be able to read them in the German tomorrow. But wherever you are in your Christian life, whether that's short little books, there's awesome short little books out there, or a podcast, or heck, a YouTube video, that part of your life should be thinking about God in such a way that you just chew on truths about Him, and it bubbles over into praise. That's what enriches our lives. And so this morning, we're going to do just that. We're going to doxologize with Paul. We're going to think about these truths. We're going to take them and break them down into little teeny tiny bites so that we can just chew on them and think on them and let, let all of that, you know, like when you got a, a good piece of steak. I mean a good steak. The kind of steak where it's a shame if you put some sauce on it. That's what I'm talking about. And you just take a bite of that on a hot summer day with your cold Mountain Dew on the table. And you just let that roll around in your mouth. And you wait for all of the different flavor to come out. That's what we're going to do is take these truths, put them in our minds, and let them churn until we bubble over into doxology. That's what we do as Christians. Now, the interesting thing is I just told you that doxology is what you do after you've been thinking about theological truths for a while. You think, you think, you think, praise. This is verse 2. Why, Paul, you've put your doxology in the wrong place. Do you notice that? We started with Ephesians chapter 2. We started the series in Ephesians chapter 2. Chapter 2 is where he tells you all of the why of the gospel. And it should be chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins and God made you alive. And then the doxology. But Paul got his book out of order. He put his doxology at the front end. Someone ought to tell him he's epistolizing wrong. Why does he do that? Well, because everything that's going to follow in this book is going to flow out of this beautiful gospel. God is where it starts. What God does for you is where all of what he says and the rest of the book is going to flow. If you look at the structure of Ephesians, you can divide it right down the middle. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is telling you over and over and over again, this is what God did for you, this is what God did for you, this is what God did for you, and not until chapter 4 does he get to telling us much of anything about what we do. And in chapter 4, he starts, he starts every chapter, 4, 5, and 6, with therefore, in other words, because of what God has already done for you, because of all that stuff, because you understand that, because you know that, now you can do something about it. And friends, that is worth noting in our lives. That everything we do 
in the Christian life is reactionary. We are reactionary people. That doesn't mean that we're reactionary as the world thinks of us where every news story gets us up in arms. We are reactionary in that the entirety of the Christian life is a response to what God has done first. We react to the cross. We are here not because we loved first, but because he first loved us. And in fact, I think that's a pretty good litmus test for the Christian life. Again, this is for free. Pretty good question to ask yourself. Does this life choice, this parenting philosophy, this church constitution, this short-term missions trip, this retirement plan, this whatever, stick, stick in your life issue, is this springing from a response to what God has done for me, or am I getting this from someplace else? Is this an implication of responding to how God has changed my life, or am I bringing in something alien to that? And those are complex questions. I'm not going to answer all of that for you this morning because that's a, a, that's a big issue to deal with. But as Christians, that ought to be who we are. Paul opens this book with the saints, the ones made holy in Christ Jesus. Your identity is wrapped up in what God has done for you. And so Paul starts this entire book with this amazing him to grace so that we will chew on it, think about it, and then react, respond. So this morning, we're just going to do that. We're going to look at these actions of God and see what he does and how we respond. The main point of the sermon this morning is for you to see. We'll talk about some things that we can do. We'll talk about some things that we can change the way we think, but the main point is to see to look at what God has done and to glory in a good God who would do that for us to the praise of his glorious grace. So in light of these last two sermons, looking at the fact that we were dead, we were depraved, we were enslaved, we are children of wrath, let's look at what God did for us this morning. Rather than read the verse again, just look with me at all of the active verbs, right? It's a basic, basic English. You need to have a sentence. You need a, you need a verb. You need an object and a subject. So we're just going to look at all of the objects and subjects and verbs, right? Verse four: He, being God, chose us. Verse five: He, God, predestined us. Verse six: He blessed us in the beloved. Verse eight: He lavished grace. On us. Verse 9, he made known to us the mystery of his will. In all of these verses, God is the actor. He's the subject. He's the subject of all the verbs. He's the active personality, right? We'll get to the end of the book where we actually do some responding, but at this point, Paul is not at all interested in what you're doing. You're on the receiving end of all of this stuff. God chooses, God gives, God loves, God blesses. And we just get to sit here and go, whoa. The gospel starts with God's action. And in fact, the entire book starts with God's action so that everything we do is going to reply, respond, react to that. So what is it that God does. Well, this morning we're going to slow way down. Like I said, we're going to just we're going to take a moment to embrace and enjoy 
what God does. So let's start in verse 4. In verse 4, I'll start in verse 3 so we can get a little context. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. So this first action of God that we're going to look at this morning, he chose us. That's simple. The rest of the sermon is going to be on that one simple idea. He chose you. Think about this. This verse says that before time began, before the foundations of the world, God chose you. When the earth was still null and void... God personally chose you, right? When when God had yet to lay the foundations of the universe, God chose you, Nicole. He, He thought of you. Before the world was formed, Spencer, God thought of your name. When no stars had been set into place, God was thinking of you, Mary. God chose you before the world began. And I am standing on this stage this morning because the Almighty of the universe decided before he laid the stars in place that I would stand here. That I would know the gospel. See, sometimes I think we so depersonalize the love of God. We know John 3.16, for God so loved the world, but it's generic and amorphous. We think God so loved the world like that old lady in my church back home who who had candy for everybody, right? She had candy in the back to give it to, y'all come, just all comers. God's like that. He loves the world. He's got candy for everybody. Friends, before the foundation of the world was laid, God chose you. This love is imminently personal for all of time. God has thought of you. Do you realize what that implies? What was God's first act of creation? If if you memorized Genesis 1-1 and you're childhood or something you probably remember God's first act of creation he looks out the earth is null and void and the first thing he says is let there be light light he separates light and darkness he calls up land and water and then separates them accordingly but that's not actually God's first act of creation before God did any of that before he called up land, before he called light into existence, before God made one single molecule, he looked into his own infinite mind at the plan of creation and picked you, chose you, and said, I'm going to save that one. Believer, God's love for you is not flippant or accidental. He didn't fall in love with you. This is the problem. We think of love like we do love. 
God fell in love with me. And that's really cool when you're a new Christian to think, oh, I'm just so lovable that God fell in love with me. Isn't this great? Until you do something really lousy and you wonder whether or not he might not fall out. Some of you maybe feel like that this morning. You, you come in and a season of life has just flattened you. And whether it's one big sin or a thousand little ones, I don't care. You come and you go, I just don't feel it. I don't know that God loves me. Well, friend, check your calendar. He didn't fall in love with you last week. Before the foundations of the world were laid, he looked into his own infinite mind and said, I want him. I'm going to claim her. She's mine. I love that one. And nothing you can do can change that because he did it before you did anything. He loves you. Do you see how much this God loves you? Do you see how, how prior his love for you is? He loves you. So often we compare God's love to love that we know that is so flippant and changing and amorphous, but not so with God. For the foundation of the world, he loved us. And he didn't love us merely in abstraction. There's a method to this love. He loved us, verse 4, he chose us in him. That's being in Christ Jesus. If you look back to verse 3, he tells us who has blessed us in Christ. And that idea of in Christ is going to run through this entire section. In every single verse, he's going to tag it on, lest you forgot about it. In Christ, in him, in him, in him, in him, in him, in the beloved, in him. Throughout this entire section. And then throughout the entire book, lest you forget about it. This is the theological idea we call union with Christ. And it's one of those ideas that even admittedly in my own life is one of those theological ideas I am most disconnected from. What does it mean for me to be in Christ? We can't grasp in our own minds what it means for us to be in, identified with, set in another person. We got us. It's just us. One, there are, there's no one else with me here. So how do I deal with in Christ? Well, the Bible starts to hint at it in lots of different ways. God is not like us. He's three, three persons in one. There's realities beyond our minds. And union with Christ is so big that we're not going to be able to tackle the whole idea this morning. But take away this. In Christ means that you are placed within Christ in order to be saved. Christ is the lifeboat in which your salvation is worked. So God didn't just choose you. There's something special about the way he chose you that is connected with Jesus. So why is this important? Well, there's massive implications. There's big books written on union with Christ. We hinted at some of it last time I preached when we talked about what it means to be exalted with Christ, seated with Christ. But this morning, I want you to see this. God's love for you is not only personal. He chose you before time began. It's also entirely reasonable. What do I mean by that? Well, there are days where I would like to think that it is marginally reasonable to love me. I'm a pretty lovable guy some days. Do pretty good. And, and I would like to think 
that most of you on my good days would be like, gee, golly, that jamming guy's pretty great. There are days that I am not lovable at all. One of the benefits of being a single guy is you just hide out on those days. Nobody gets to know about them. There are days that I am completely unlovable. And if God's love for me was based on my lovability, even in my most prideful calculation, I'd be running about a 33%. It's a good batting average, but it's not what I want for my salvation. That if God is going to love me based on my lovability on any given day, he's going to love me maybe a third of the time. And when I back up and see that God's standard is holiness, like we talked about the last two weeks, pretty much even that evaporates away. So how is it that God's love for us can be reasonable and not blind? Think of love as blind. The only reason we think of love as blind is because we're all messed up, but we've got to admit it. Because God loves you in Christ. You remember at Christ's baptism, the sky rips open, and God the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, lands on his shoulder. God the Father speaks from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. When God saved me, he did so in Christ. I am placed in Christ so that when God looks at me, even on my lousiest days, he is not looking at me. I am in Christ, and so he is able to look down at me and say, well done. This is my son, Jamin, in whom I am well pleased. Because I look at him and I see Jesus, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the perfect beloved before the foundations of the world. This is why Jesus can say, and if this doesn't blow your mind, you're not listening. This is why Jesus can say, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. The God of all perfection before the foundation of the world, the God from whom love flows out, who perfectly loves in the Trinity, that is the love with which he loves you. Do you know that? We can't grasp it. The same way God loved Jesus, because I am in Jesus, he loves me with that love. That's crazy. He loved me in Christ. The perfect one, the perfect son, completely lovable, completely obedient. God says, I love him. So in the same way, at Christ's baptism, the heavens are ripped open and God says, this is my beloved son. At your baptism, because you are in Christ, God could rip open the heavens and say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. He's in Christ. She is in Christ. And I love God's love for you cannot wear out because it has been fueled from eternity in Christ. He loves his son perfectly. He will never give up on his son, and you are in his son. Therefore, he will never give up on you. He cannot deny himself. You know, I think this gets really practical in the ways we think about God's love. I'm amazed at how long you can be a Christian and still miss little things. 
I've been reading through this little book. It's called The Gospel Primer. I give this thing out like hotcakes ever since I started reading it. It's awesome. Last time I gave you a book I don't want you to read. This time I'm giving you a book I really want you to read. It's like 100 pages, and it's repeated. It's got three sections. Each of the sections repeat. It's the gospel over and over and over again. He tells the gospel one way. He tells the gospel in questions. Then he tells the gospel in a story, and then he tells the gospel in a poem. And you're supposed to read it every day. And I got to the story section of the gospel, and I hit on these words, and it messed with me. I started to argue with the author a little bit. This is what he says. When I sin, God's grace abounds to me all the more. He graciously maintains my justified status as described above. I can affirm that. Then he says, when I sin, God feels no wrath in his heart against me. His heart is filled with nothing but love for me. He longs for me to repent and confess my sins to him so that I might show, so that he might show me the gracious and loving love that he has had for me in his heart all along. And I started to argue with the author in my head because I went, certainly there's got to be, there's got to be some little bit of disappointment in God's heart when I sin. Certainly just, just a little bit of wrath that's left for me. But like any good book, he's got loads of biblical references, so I had to check his work and go through and read all these passages that he's, he's referenced in Colossians and Thessalonians, and I started to see that my view of God's love was way too small. Way too small. He has no wrath in his heart for me. Why? Because he's looking at Jesus. That's finished. That's done. That's taken care of. There is no condemnation. And he looks at Jesus and he sees me, complete love in his heart, just coming, come back and let me love you. People, I'm a pastor and I need to hear this every day. Because I don't think of myself that way. I don't think that God loves me that way. I don't feel like God loves me that way. And I have to be told over and over and over again. When he looks at you, he sees Jesus. He loves you like Jesus. So he chose me before the foundation of the world. He placed me in Christ. His love for me is characterized by his love for Christ. And then he gave me this purpose. Again, we're only in one verse this morning, so it should be easy to find. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. The goal of this action is to be holy and blameless in love. I don't know about you, but I hate being blamed. It stinks. Whether or not you deserve it, it stinks. When I am blamed and I deserve it, it crushes me and it's frustrating that I failed and I don't have it together and it messes with my identity and I'm angry at myself. And when I'm blamed and I don't deserve it, well, then I'm mad at you. I don't want to have to deal with that. Why do I have to live in a world where I'm blamed? Get this. Your future is a future in which you will never be blamed again. Perfectly restored. No blame. No blame shifting. No blame for me ever again, holy and blameless in love. It's interesting. You might notice a little quirky translation thing that happens in your Bible. At the end of verse 4, you've got this 
little two-word phrase, in love, stuck onto the end of the verse. But most modern translations will put a period there and tack that on to verse 5. Now, the original Greek text has no punctuation, so neither of these are mistakes. But you can see how this idea works. The person who put in the verses, which go not back to Jesus' time, but way back to about the Middle Ages, said, okay, what he did was he predestined us to be holy and blameless in love. That idea, that, that we would be holy, blameless, and, and in a loving community. And then the modern translator has said, well, actually, I think in love he predestined us. That that was an act of love to predestine us. And you can see, neither of those ideas is a bad idea. Neither of the, those ideas makes us go, well, that can't be right. I mean, I've just spent the last 40 minutes telling you how much God loved you in his choosing of you. But interestingly enough, I think the original versifier guy, what, what's the verb form of that verse, the, the guy who put in the verses? I think he was right. The reason why is Paul has the same idea mirrored in the book of 1 Thessalonians. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Thessalonians 3.12, he says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, for all men, so that he may establish you in your heart blameless in holiness before God. See how that parallels exactly? Blameless in holiness before God, to be established in that means that your heart abounds in love. So this, Christian, is your future. God has prepared you, is putting you on the track. The course is laid out that you would be perfect within a community that truly loves you. Holy and blameless in perfect love with God and with each other. He has called you, he has set you on the course of being placed in a communion of love. And this was God's plan for you before the foundation of the world. To say that God has a good plan for your life is the understatement of the millennium. We throw that out there. God has a good plan for your life. In other words, because my tie rods broke this week, God's going to fix them. Maybe. But this is much better. That before the foundations of the world, if you are in Christ, God has destined you for a perfect communion of love where you will be holy and blameless. The great theologian Augustine says, not able to sin. How awesome will that be? Or I can't even sin anymore because I'm so in love with my Savior. Friend, when tomorrow is too hard to bear, stop looking at tomorrow from eternity past to eternity future. Your future is set that you might be holy and blameless before him in a perfect communion of love. This is so hard to apply, and yet it's very personal to me. It is so hard to let eternity shape our views of the present. Most of you know that up until recently I was engaged to be married. This month was supposed to be the big day. And that is not the future that God had for me. And I have asked God over and over again, with tear-filled eyes, what are you doing with my future? What are you doing with my future? Friends, this is the future God has for me. From eternity past, he chose that I would be made into the image of his son and put into a perfect community of love. That's what he's promised. That's the hope I can have. From eternity past, he had that planned. He is not shocked. 
He is not scared. He did not not see this coming. From eternity past, all things will work together for my good because he's already got it in his hands. Called that I might be holy and blameless before him in a perfect community of love. That's what he did for me when I was still dead and didn't love him at all. His plan is secure. My future is secure because he planned it way in the past. So in conclusion this morning, why did I call this sermon Lost and Found? You may have noticed that those words aren't even anywhere in this passage. Where did I pull that out from? Well, I think that this passage is the theological exposition of those parables that Jesus told. What does it mean for God to go to the highways and hedges? What does it mean for him to be like a widow that seeks a lost coin? What does it mean for God to be like a shepherd that will go to any extent to bring in his lost sheep? What does that mean in real theological, spiritual terms? This is what it means. Before the foundation of the world, God said to his son Jesus, Go get Ethan. I've chosen to love him. Go get Chris. I want him at my banquet. Go get Ruth. I've placed my love on her. Go get them. Before the foundation of the world, God was on a missions trip to you. And it wasn't a three-hour flight out of Miami. Before the foundation of the world, he said, I will send my son for her. I will send my son for him. I love him. I have placed him in my son. I will show the world my glory in loving him. So maybe you're here this morning and you are hearing this call from God for the first time. You feel him tugging at your heart. My friend, this is not accidental. This is incredibly personal. God calls us by name. So if you are getting jerked around this morning and you feel him tugging at you, give in. Good luck outrunning him, okay? It'd be easier if you just give in now because he will call your name and do not turn away from that. It is beautiful and personal and wonderful. Maybe you're here this morning and he's already gotten your heart maybe 30 years ago. But you just need to re be reminded of how you came. He loved you first. He placed you in his son. And his love has the purpose of making you holy and blameless and perfect and looking just like Christ. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and will break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. This bud will have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Let's pray.
Father, to the praise of your glorious grace that you loved us in Christ before the foundations of the world. We are undeserving, and yet you are amazing. Father, help us to see, help us to remember, help us to daily speak to our hearts the truth about the God who loved first. Give us eyes to see. We say it all in Jesus' name. Amen.